You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Revelation chapter 13. Maybe more than any other chapter in this incredible, overwhelming at times book has captured the imagination of Christians, the fear of Christians, the uncertainty, the uneasiness, even the anxiety of Christians, and it's dominated a lot of our theological discourse. But not only has this been something in the life of the church, but this is one of the places inside of Scripture where the symbolism and the imagery contained in this chapter has moved beyond the imagination and even the fears of the church and has become something that's part of the common language of of culture as a whole and really has been since very early on in the life of the church. When we look at Revelation chapter 13, we see this picture of these two beasts brought up by the dragon, brought up by the enemy of Christ and the cross. And like anything in this book, there are a lot of different interpretations and and ways to understand and kind of translate this passage. And one of the most common that's come up and down all throughout church history is to recognize the imagery here as a representation of, of a person or a kingdom that would rise up in opposition to God. And so really, since the time that this passage was written, Christians and otherwise have tried to figure out the identity of of what's often called an antichrist and who would this person be and what would this all look like? And so accusations have been thrown at a wide variety of people and places, Roman emperors or the ancient Roman kingdom as a whole, different popes and religious leaders throughout the history of the church and different seasons of church life. Governmental kings, leaders, and dictators throughout history, even modern foreign leaders and presidents of our country have been accused and have these accusations lobbed against them. But not only has the figure of of these beasts of Revelation been something in question, but maybe one of the most well-known numbers inside of Scripture falls in this passage too, where we see the number 666. And this, again, has been one of those things that's caused a lot of difficulty and controversy in its interpretation. It's bled over into pop culture and become something that if you just say that, sometimes it even warrants superstition. A few weeks ago, I was at the Dollar General, and I was buying some supplies for my classroom, and my total came up to $6.66. And the lady behind the cash register made a really uncomfortable face. And she was like, would you like would you like to buy something else? I was like, no, I would not. It's all right. But she was like, you know, I mean, and she actually said, I I promise you, she said, I'm not religious. I don't go to church or anything, but this number is always giving me the heebie-jeebies. I was like, well, for starters, I didn't spend $666. And if I did at the dollar store, something deeply has gone wrong in my life. But we're okay here. But there's a little bit of, of a superstition about it. But then also we try to figure out and and plug in what could this possibly mean. And with each generation, this has changed a little bit from being a number associated with the name of Nero to moving into fears over new technology like credit cards or barcodes or microchips that you put in your pet in case Fluffy runs away and you can't find them. And then the worry that that could be something that, that becomes human. But there's all of these ideas about what this could possibly mean. 
But when we look at this chapter in the context of the larger book of Revelation, and in particularly in context of the rest of Scripture, what this passage reveals to us is far more sinister and overwhelming than any historical figures, any world leaders, barcodes, or comic book style villains. We've seen through this passage as we looked through Revelation that kingdoms and nations will try to rise up and they'll all have their seasons, but the physical kingdoms of the world are nothing compared to the power of Christ. And as we saw just a moment ago, just a couple weeks ago, this idea that when God has decided that it's time for these kingdoms and their reign to be over, boom, it's over and it's gone. There's no real inherent power, physical or spiritual there. And even when we talk about our enemies like sin and death, Jesus has already conquered those through his death and resurrection. And we have this promise of life and life eternal. But as we saw all of that take place in Romans chapter 12, in that beautifully spiritual passage showing us God's picture of salvation in the gospel, as we're reminded of Christ's victory over the kingdoms of this world and over sin and death, we see at the end of that passage that one enemy still remains. This figure described as a dragon as the adversary of God's people who has been around as long as we have and beyond. And we see in Revelation chapter 12, this dragon try to make war against Christ and against his people. He tries to bring violence against them, but it fails. The church in Acts continued to thrive and continue to grow and spread all over the world. And no matter what harm, no matter what physical threats come against the church, she still continues to grow and thrive because God is protecting her. And so when the dragon can't stop the church and the gospel through violence, he turns to a more powerful persuasion, idolatry. And here in Revelation chapter 13, we see the revelation of the true enemies of Christ. These beasts that seek to devour God's people spiritually and otherwise and prevent others from following after the Lamb. And so we're going to look today at how the enemies of God, these spiritual enemies of God and his kingdom operate. And the key word today is is false. They operate in falsehoods, mimicry, copycatting, trying to take attention away from God and lead people away from the truth and into the lie. And so we're going to look at some false things that the enemies of God bring about to try to lead us astray. And then next week, we're going to talk very much in depth about what we can do to combat those things because we have the responsibility to do so as the people of God. But let's read through this chapter of scripture together. And then we'll talk about it. In Revelation 13, the word of God says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon it gave power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound had healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who could fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 
It opened its mouth to utter blasphemy against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, before we even get started here, we just thank you that you are victorious and that you triumph over all of your enemies. And even as we look at the greatest enemy that comes against your people, that comes against the church, this spiritual opposition to Christ and the gospel, God, we know that even the dragon. Even Satan, the adversary, the accuser of your church and your people, his time is short. And so, God, we celebrate your victory. But we also know that right here in the here and now, we have an enemy that is coming against us, seeking to kill and to destroy, but not in the way that we would assume. And so, God, help us to be wise, not just to salvation, but wise to perseverance and endurance. Help us to hear this passage as a call for endurance and faith of your people and help us to know the truth so that we can defend against the lie. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Revelation chapter 12 ends with an ominous scene. We see the dragon making war against this this woman that represents the people of God. And he pours out this water out of his mouth, this this chaos and this violence against the church, against God's people. And yet God still provides protection over his people. But the chapter ends with the dragon standing on the edge of this chaos, standing on the edge of the water, breathing out threats against God's people. And it just gets worse from there. Because immediately here in chapter 13, now we see the dragon raise up not one in this vision, but two beasts, one coming out of the sea, one coming out of the earth for the purpose of again making war against the people of God. 
And when we look at these passages, when we look at these beasts that come out, there's something very familiar about them. In the first beast, we see all of these characteristics that he has. He saw he was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's. His mouth was like a lion. And to the dragon, it gave its power and its authority. And we see this picture that there's, there's 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems. And there's this connection there to the visual image that we see of the dragon himself inside of chapter 12. And so right here, we have this picture that this beast that's coming out looks like the dragon, looks like Satan, looks like the enemy of God. And then when the second beast comes out, the appearance is different. But in verse 11, it says, it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. And so one of these beasts looks like the enemy of God's church. The other sounds like the enemy of God's people. But there's another more disturbing familiarity to this passage. Because when we look through the entirety of the book of Revelation that we've seen so far, there have been some consistent things about the way that God is presented. That God is constantly shown in the midst of the elements. That we see lightning and thunder surrounding the throne of God and earthquakes and, and everything moves around God. But also we see Jesus is the lamb who was slain and yet lives. And we see the Holy Spirit is the voice of God going out in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of all the churches, speaking the gospel and empowering the church to do what the church is called to do. We also see numbers like seven and 10 pop up around the character and the nature and the work of God. And now here, we see the enemy stealing that imagery. We see the dragon in the midst of the sea, in the midst of this natural calamity. We see the dragon speak and bring forth his own sort of unholy trinity to give a false picture of who God really is. We see the first beast that has what seemed like a mortal wound and yet he lived. We see the second beast that has the presence and the appearance of a lamb, but also speaks and motivates people to worship the dragon. And so we have this picture of a false trinity. And so that's the first falsehood we see in this passage of scripture is the dragon creates for him a false trinity or a false picture of God. When I was in middle school, here at Loganville Middle School. The school used to be back behind the Kroger, and now it's a church, which is really funny for this next part of the story. Because there were two gyms, right? Because the schools used to be together. And so there was the lower gym, there was the middle school gym, and then the upper gym that at one point was the high school gym. And in case you're new to town, Loganville High School and Middle School, the mascot is the Red Devils. And so there was a mural on the wall in the lower gym. And I guess because we were in middle school and we were little people, it was a little devil. He was like a cute little guy. He was just tiny and had a little pot belly and wore this weird little diaper thing and had a tiny tail and a tiny pitchfork and little bitty horns. But then when you went up to the upper gym, the mural was a touch different. There was a big blowout kind of painted on the wall, right? Like something burst through the wall and it was a devil, like a full grown devil just bright red, the whole slick back hair and the goatee. I'm not sure where that came from, but just that very maniacal goatee and a really intense look on his face. And he was jacked, like professional wrestler Jack, just muscles that had muscles that had muscles and this big, incredible pitchfork. And it was horrifying looking, big cape, the whole deal. The essence of what we usually imagine when we think of evil, when we think of the devil, when we think of Satan. 
And when we think of those things, it always comes in, in horror kind of terms. And this isn't new to us. We see this in, in stories like Paradise Lost. We see this in Dante's Inferno, that when evil is personified in our imaginations, it looks horrifying. It looks noticeably evil. It looks noticeably bad to the point where when you see that, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 that's not good. I don't want to go near that. But when we look at this passage of Scripture, our expectation isn't really reality. The expectation that our enemy will be obvious is completely contrary to the reality where the enemy here tries to look as close to truth, as close to light, and as close to life as he possibly can. Remember Genesis chapter three, which is referenced in Revelation chapter 12, that serpent in the garden. There's no, there's no sense of fear when the serpent approaches Eve. There's no sense of confusion. There's no anxiety from Eve. He walks up and he begins to speak to her and she just receives it. And there's a charm and an elegance with which the serpent speaks to Eve. When we see Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness, we don't see the sky go black. We don't see any darkness. We don't see any overwhelming pictures of something that we would describe as the powers of hell. We see a simple conversation that looks incredibly normal until we start to see the things that are going on there. And so instead of coming as a noticeable opposite to God, our enemy tries to mask himself as close to God as he possibly can. And the result of what we have here is this unholy trinity that's seeking to lure people away from the true king, trying to distract people away from the God who sits on his throne over the crystal sea and to start following the dragon who stands on its shore, to start not following the lamb who was slain, but the one who kind of looks like it, and the one who sounds a little bit like truth, but isn't quite. And one of the interpretations that can go along with this number here at the end, this 666, is that it's a representation of how close our enemy can come. We've seen the number seven is this picture of divine completeness all the way through scripture. We've seen the Trinitarian imagery of God being holy, holy, holy. And now here, this picture is this number that's almost seven. It almost feels complete. It almost even feels righteous. And yet it comes up short. And so here as we see this picture of a false trinity, we're reminded why it is so important to have preaching and gospel presentation that shows a clear picture of who God is and who his gospel is because our enemy is not as far off as we think. And sometimes if we're not careful, it's not that easy to tell the difference when we're not pursuing Christ the way that we should. And so we have this picture of a false trinity. And this false trinity carries with it a false power. In the book of Exodus, we see Moses and Aaron going back into Egypt with the instructions to set the people free out of slavery. And so they come to the Pharaoh and they say, hey, Pharaoh, you know all of those slaves that you have that kind of look like us and sound like us? Well, there are people. And our God would really like it if you let them go. And Pharaoh says, oh, yeah, absolutely, of course, of course. Free labor is really easy to come by and it's not like I didn't have to conquer them and we don't have to spend a lot of time and effort and resources. Sure, absolutely. Take all of these hundreds of thousands of people. You just go. You have your own way, right? No. Pharaoh said, absolutely not. You are not taking these people out of here. That's not going to be a thing that happens. And so God says, hey, Moses, why don't we show them what we got? Take your staff and throw it to the ground and it's going to turn into a snake. And it does. 
That had to be awesome to see. But then Pharaoh, he has these, these sorcerers, these magicians around that had learned some, some, some cheap tricks. And they say, oh, we can do that. And they take their staves and, and they throw them at the ground and the same thing happens. They turn to snakes. Only Moses' snake eats the other two. But then God says, all right, take your staff now and touch the water and turn it to blood. And he does and it happens and it's amazing. But then again, those, those magicians, they say, no, we can do that too. And they give another representation of what that could look like. But then God says, okay, you really want to see what I can do? I'll show you what I can do. And he unleashes these plagues on the people of Egypt to the point where Pharaoh himself realizes, oh man, we are way over our head. When we look at the enemy of God here, his greatest strength is his ability and his willingness to mimic God. Not just in the way that he looks, but also in the things that he could do. And when we see the power of the enemies of God here in this passage, we need to recognize that the power is not equal. This is not a yin and yang situation. There is not God over here that is the fullness of the forces of good, and then Satan over here that is the fullness of the forces in evil, and they are in this cosmic turmoil that seems pretty balanced. As we're going to see, once we get to the end of the road here in the book of Revelation, this enemy even itself is easy to put away once and for all. But that doesn't mean that our enemy doesn't have power. And his power might not be equal to God's, but it's certainly opposite. Now we've seen the, the trumpets and the judgments all throughout this passage of scripture in the book of Revelation that helps us realize that again, all of these earthly kingdoms and powers that we feel like have so much authority really have nothing. There is no power. That The Bible says that all authority is given by God and the moment he decides to remove it, he does. But even here in the middle of the book of Revelation, we see this one kingdom that remains, this one enemy that's represented by this unholy trinity, the spiritual forces of darkness and evil that come against God and his church. But let's back up before we get there. Because again, going to the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, Daniel has a vision, two in fact, one of a great statue made of different minerals and metals, the other of several different beasts. And each of these beasts and each of these part of, of this statue represent a kingdom that's going to come in and oppress God's people, representing Babylon and Persia, Greece and ancient Rome, all of them coming one after the other, laying the groundwork for Jesus to come into the world, for the Messiah to come into the world and bring the gospel with him. And each one of these was stronger than the last. But now when we look at, at these beasts, we see those characteristics of Daniel's beasts all consumed in this one picture of these beasts that the dragon calls forth. And so there's a school of thought here that says that this represents some sort of future kingdom or future king that's going to establish some great power that the world has never seen and is going to make war against the church and going to rule the world until God says otherwise. But again, when put in the context of the book of Revelation, I think what we see here is not some sort of future superpowered enemy, but one that's as old as sin itself. An enemy that has been actively present in God's world since the beginning, breathing lies against God's people, making accusations against God's people, trying to steal away the worship of God and cause people to fall in to sin. And so for this to be the case, just looking divine isn't enough. But the enemies of God have to display a power that appears divine. 
And we see that right off the bat with the dragon calling out these beasts. And the very first beast that comes out is overwhelming looking. Ten heads or ten horns, seven heads and ten diadems on its horns. Blasphemous names written all over it and all these incredible pictures. And then it says that there is a head that seems to have a mortal wound. But the mortal wound was healed. And this was overwhelming to the people that were gathered there. And so they start following. The people start following this beast. And then the second beast that comes out performs great signs, making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. So people see these works that the enemies of God are able to do. And they say, oh man, that feels like power. That feels like something we can trust and something that we could follow. Sometimes it's easy to overstate the power of our enemy to give Satan far too much credit than he deserves. But I think the more dangerous option is the one that, that, in full disclosure, I fall into more often than not. And that's understating the power of our enemy and thinking that our enemy has no real power against us or in this world. But here we have a call to be aware. We have a calling to take on the full armor of God because the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the principalities and the spiritual enemies of God on a daily basis. And so because of that, we need to take up our spiritual armor and stay ready. In my fifth grade class that I get to teach all week, I got these two little guys in there that are are just prayer warriors, man. Every day, like they alternate who's gonna pray and open us up in prayer. And one of the little guys, every time he prays, he asks that God would give us the full armor of God. Now, sometimes he goes through the whole list. And sometimes, like, I'm telling you, these prayers can get really long. And it's exciting and it's awesome. And he just starts listing out these armor of God that he asked God to put on us. And I have been overwhelmingly convicted that I don't ever do that. That when I pray and I ask God for strength and support, it's always to be able to do things physically. Or maybe to lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, just to keep me from sinning and keeping my behavior on track with what it's supposed to look like and give me the strength to lead well and to serve well and to love well. And it's all physical. And very rarely do I ever ask God to give me spiritual protection. And yet our enemy is coming at us with a spiritual power that can harm us and cause others to fall away from the truth of the gospel. And so we need to stay ready. We're going to talk about this verse a little more in detail here. But here at the end of verse 10, it says, here is a call for endurance and the faith of the saints. And so we need to be ready to defend ourselves and others against our enemy because his power is real. And so we need to be prepared not only with the gospel on our mouths and in our hands, but also in our hearts, knowing what is true and being willing to stand against it. So we have a false trinity and this false power. And that leads to the presentation of a false gospel. In the garden, after the serpent lays out its charm on Eve, and he sees that she's got some doubts, she sees that she's got some questions, he's unlocked just the right moment in her life, then he dives in and he goes full blasphemy, right? Once he knows that that she's not quite certain about what God said and what God's commandments were, he goes and he says, no, 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 God just doesn't want you to be like him and you're not going to die. You do this, you take it on yourself and you're going to be all right. And the same time in the wilderness with Jesus, 
That last temptation, Satan finally has had enough with trying to lure Jesus into physical satisfaction and into caring for himself physically. He says, so what? You want to rule the world? I'll give you the world. All you have to do is fall down and worship me. And so as we see the enemies of God still falling short time and time again with power and violence, they start to make up for it in lies. And this is the currency of the beasts in this passage. This is the way that our enemy comes. Even from the very beginning, the enemy of the church is a liar. And he's an adversary and he's an accuser speaking lies to and against God's people. And so what the dragon and the first beast fail to accomplish by fear and violence, the second beast comes along and tries to do so through words. And we see another set of falsehoods, this time not that make up the enemy of God, but that the enemy of God is trying to lead the people of God and those in this world into. And so he leads people first into false worship. We see this start in verse 4. It says, They worshiped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And then in verse 12, the second beast, it says it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. When we look at the book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments, God doesn't start with behavior modification. God doesn't come to the people and says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, as far as the things that they should do. Those all find themselves at the end. The don't murder, don't have adultery, don't steal. All that stuff finds itself at the end of the Ten Commandments. God begins with two simple commandments saying, you'll have no other gods before me, and you won't make for yourself any graven images and worship them. And God begins his commandments with idolatry because our hearts begin with idolatry. See, more often than not, when it comes to sin, we like to put all, we like to outsource that. When we sin, when we mess up, especially when we're caught in habitual sin, we say things like, you know, the devil made me do it. Or the devil's been working really hard to get me to fall short of my sin. The devil's been working really hard to take my eyes off Jesus and, and lead me into these sins. And that's why I'm doing all of these things. But there's a problem with that. Because the Bible says that when we sin, it's because we're tempted out of our own evil desires. That our sin comes from within because we are so broken and consumed by that, that our sin is self-idolatry. In that practice, we don't need any outside help to fall into sin. And when we look at the enemy of God here, he doesn't come with a call to sin, but a call to worship. Same thing is true in the garden. He wasn't asking Eve simply to break God's rule. He was telling her to worship herself. You could be like God. When he comes to Jesus, he isn't trying to lead Jesus into any sort of immorality. He comes to Jesus and he says, fall down and worship me. And so our enemy is often less concerned with causing sin because we can do plenty of that on our own. And he's far more concerned with redirecting our worship taking our eyes off of the truth of God and having us either worship him and the powers and forces of this world and darkness or even just worshiping ourselves. And he'll settle with that because it's just as idolatrous. And so he leads the people into false worship and then it's that false worship that then leads them into false works. But that starts with the work of the enemy. 
Right off the bat, we see this picture that the first beast is showing this power that seems to be over life and death, having one head that seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And because of that, people followed the beast. And then again in verse 13 and 14, the second beast performs signs making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Very rarely do we worship just because. Now, when it comes to true worship, when it comes to worshiping God, we should absolutely be able to worship God just because because of who he is, independent of anything he's ever done, just the nature of God should be enough for us to worship him, but a lot of times it's not for us. We say, okay, God, you want, to, you want me to worship you? Give me a reason. Do something for me. Show me what you've got. Oh God, you helped me through finding this job. You've helped us through financial struggles. You helped us through health struggles. I've seen all these things you're doing, and so now I'm gonna worship you and glorify you. But the same thing is true in idolatry. We worship money because of what it can do for us. We worship power and prestige because of the places that it can take us. We worship family and security because it makes us feel comfortable and cared for. We worship celebrity because we can live vicariously through them. We worship athletes because they can give us a sense of regional and personal pride. Everything that we worship, we do so because it gives us something. And so the enemy of God comes and says, okay, if that's all it takes, Let me show you what I can do. And the beast has this appearance of works that begin to attract its worshipers. And then as the people start worshiping the enemy of God, then that starts to influence the works of his followers. Verse 14 says, by the signs that allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. It leads them into false worship and then tells them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Because the reality that we need to recognize is that worship always eventually affects our works. G.K. Beale says that we become what we worship. That whatever we give our affection to, whatever we give our worship to, whatever we give our devotion to, eventually that's going to go from an internal devotion to an external working. And in verse 16 and 17, we see some imagery that should sound kind of familiar. It says it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. And we've already seen in the book of Revelation this idea of someone being sealed. We see the people of God, both small and great, those who follow after the Lamb, those who trust in Jesus, it says that we are sealed by God. And as we've already seen, none of us have a weird tattoo. None of us have a weird Jesus barcode. None of us have a weird Jesus microchip. And so clearly this is talking about something deeper. And all throughout the Old Testament, the idea of being sealed on the head or on the hands is a marking that you are devoting your mind and your works to something. And so here in this passage of scripture, not only are they being led to worship the enemies of God, to turn their worship away from God, but that moves into their hands and they begin doing the works of the enemies of God. Followers of Christ follow his mind. We follow his heart. We follow his works because he seals those things up for us. And the same is true for those who follow his enemies. False worship will always produce false works. And those false works 
lead to a false security. In the Gospels, Jesus tells us to not be anxious about anything. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. God clothes the flowers of the field and he provides for the birds of the air and he loves you so much more. And so he's going to provide for you. And so don't be anxious and don't worry. And yet we are a lot. In the wilderness, when Satan comes to Jesus, the very first thing he tells him to do is to eat. Jesus is fasting in the wilderness. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, man, you look really hungry. You look really weak. And and it would be so easy. You know who you are. You could tell this stone to become bread and you could eat and you could have that security and that satisfaction. But Jesus says, no, I don't live on bread alone, but by the word that comes from the mouth of God. And Satan takes him up to the top of the temple. He says, hey, listen, you could throw yourself down here and nothing's going to happen to you. You are secure. You don't have anything to worry about. You throw yourself from the top of this temple and you know, and Satan starts quoting scripture to Jesus saying, he's going to send his angels and your feet won't even strike the ground. So just, just test it and see. And then he takes Jesus up, knowing that again, Jesus one day would struggle with going to the cross. He says, I could give you all of this. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to follow after this plan. You don't have to do anything. You fall down and worship me and I will make your future secure. But like everything that the enemies have to offer, this is, it's just a lie. And there is a promise that often if we turn away from God, because following after Jesus feels riskier, it feels more dangerous. And so a lot of times we don't even tell people about the cost of following Jesus. We just give them the benefits package, right? It's just, it's eternal life. And Jesus will love you and your life will probably be better or something. And so that's why the minute that that someone who's following after Jesus, who's been fed that lie, the minute they deal with adversity or conflict or hardship, everything starts to fall apart because like, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. Give me something that works. And so here you have this picture of worshiping and working for the enemy of God. It provides comfort. So, So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. It's like, you you follow me, you can eat. You follow me, you can drink. You follow me, you'll be physically provided for. You won't have to worry about anything. You just trade your worship of God and follow after me and I'll make sure all these things that God doesn't seem to care about, I'll take care of you. Remember when Jesus was preparing to go into Jerusalem and he told his disciples that he had to die and Peter said, nope, that does not sound secure. We were going in this place to conquer it, man. We were going in this place to take over. You were bringing the kingdom of God to earth and I'm not gonna let you die because if you die, I know where this comes. They're coming for me next. And we even see Peter still fall into this as Christ is being tried, ready to die. Peter is distancing himself, trying his best to preserve his life. But Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, you gotta think about things eternal, man. You've got to think about the things that matter. And after the resurrection of Jesus, we see that mentality change where Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. And Peter says, whatever, I'm going. I'm following after you wherever you lead me because he was assured of his hope in Christ. And we need to be the kind of people who think about eternal security more than we do temporal. We need to hold on to the truth more than being willing to change it in for a lie that can bring us momentary satisfaction. 
Because Jesus tells us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Why would you risk gaining your life now to lose it for eternity? And so we need to recognize that there's going to be an allure always of a more immediate temporary security in falling away from Christ than there is in pursuing him. But the hope that we have in the gospel is so much greater. And we're going to talk about that next week because there, there's a, a reference back to that same calling to follow after Jesus in verse 12 of chapter 14. He says, here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And so keeping our faith in Jesus means that sometimes we might not feel very secure. Sometimes we might not feel very safe. But we're being reminded that we are in the hands of a God who will never leave us or forsake us. And to never exchange the truth of that kind of security for the lie of momentary safety. So we have a real enemy one that is, is far more overwhelming than anything that we could imagine, create, or put on a person. And that enemy is making war against us and against Jesus every single day. And knowing the enemy is only half the battle. And so next week, we're going to look at, with recognizing all these things that the enemy does and all these things that the enemy is, we're going to look at how we, as followers of Christ, can stand against the enemy and his powers. We've already got the victory, but we have the responsibility to stand and live and walk in that victory and bring other people along with us. And so next week, we're going to talk about that as we look at our responsibility for endurance and faith, keeping the commandments and holding fast to the faith of Jesus. But until then, we need to be aware that we have an enemy and each and every day to put on the spiritual armor that God has given us. And we're going to do that in just a moment in a physical way by coming to the table and being reminded that Christ died for us. So the accusations of our enemies are empty. The power that our, empty, that our enemy has is just temporary and for a moment and that we will be able to stand victorious as we taste the victory of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray. And as I do, I'm going to ask that you pray along with me and that you prepare to come to the table if you're a follower of Jesus and that you would ask God, A, you'd confess and repent where you need to. Maybe we just need to confess of the, the places in our life that look more like the enemy of God than those that look like God. But also ask that as we come and we take this tiny piece of bread and this tiny cup, that we would be reminded of the overwhelming victory that we have in Jesus and that we would not be overwhelmed or oppressed by his enemies, but that we would be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus and through our testimony that comes through the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the victory that you've won for us through Christ, the cross, and the empty tomb. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. But God, also forgive us for the times when we are content to just coast through life when we forget that we have an enemy making accusations against you, accusations against us, and desperately seeking to kill and destroy those that you've created. God, I do pray 
that each and every day that you wrap us in the armor of God. Righteousness and truth and faith. God, that we would be so enamored and enraptured by your word that we would know truth in the midst of lies. And that we would be more than conquerors through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony each and every day. And that through that work, God, you would draw people to yourself. That you would, we would see people saved and baptized because of our stand against the enemy. So God, we just pray that as we get prepared to come to the table, that you would strengthen us through the bread and the cup you would meet us here and commune with us and remind us that we're not alone, both spiritually, but also physically, as you've surrounded us with a group of believers who love you and care for you in the same way, and that we are going out together as one for the cause of the gospel. So Father, bless the bread and the cup and all those who come and take it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.